Hi everyone, welcome to the 39A podcast series. I'm Menka Khanna and today I will be speaking to Mr. Shri Singh about the recent Supreme Court judgment in Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary versus Union of India. This judgment upholds the constitutionality of various provisions of the Prevention of Money Laundering Act, commonly known as the PMLA, and it is an incredibly important judgment for reasons that um, I'm sure we will cover in today's conversation. Mr. Shri Singh is a criminal defense lawyer in New Delhi who specializes in white-collar crime cases. He has been and continues to be part of several high-profile trials under the PMLA, and therefore I think there are few people better placed than him to discuss this important judgment. Mr. Singh is not only part of these criminal prosecutions, but he regularly appears before the authorities involved in the attachment and confiscations of properties under this law, which is sort of the second aspect to this um, to this legislation. I personally have had the good fortune of working with and learning under Mr. Singh for over four years. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with him today. Before I get started, I just want to sort of set the tone of today's conversation. Um, there has been a lot of discussion on the judgment and the provisions of the PMLA and why the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of these specific provisions. Um, In today's podcast, I thought we would instead take more of a bird's eye view of the judgment and the legislation and get Mr. Singh's insights about these broader themes and implications. Um, So, sir, I first wanted to ask you, you know, this judgment is monumentous in many ways. It decides more than 20 legal issues related to the PMLA. So what are your first impressions of it? How have courts and tribunals been responding to it? And what are the implications that you see and anticipate in the future? Um, Hi, Menika. Good evening. Um, And thank you for that uh, thoroughly undeserved introduction. I think the first thing that we must uh, mention as we start today's podcast on the 25th of August is that the judgment today stands under a uh, review petition uh, which was allowed uh, which was in which notice was issued uh, by the supreme court and um, it's been now kept for hearing uh, the notice was issued a few hours ago so i'm not sure what the wording of the order is but from what we could hear perhaps there may be a limited notice issued uh, by the supreme court to review uh, this judgment uh, on two issues. One on the uh, issues of whether the ECIR, that is the first information report insofar as ED is concerned, should be given uh, to an accused or not, something that we'll perhaps discuss. And the second is on the, and more importantly, is on the aspects of uh, doing away with the presumption of innocence with respect to some of the provisions of the PMLA. So the Supreme Court will have a relook on at least some of these provisions. So the um, so this, the finality of this judgment is something that uh, perhaps uh, it, it isn't as final as it was uh, today morning. From a practitioner's point of view, uh, whatever your views are on the merits of the judgment, um, uh, it's actually quite a relief that many of these issues have come to some sort of closure. The fact that there were as many as 20, or in fact over 20 issues that were open for discussion in a uh, in a judgment that was passed by a full bench of the Supreme Court uh, should 
indicate to you the the fluid and uh, uncertain nature of the law as it stood uh whether one says that these issues have been rightly or wrongly decided depending irrespective of which line which side of the line you fall uh the fact that some of these issues have uh, been given some shape some sort of final shape at least means that for the for counsel on the defense you have fixed points through which one can at least begin to navigate otherwise pleadings were becoming um very bulky stands that had to be taken had to be taken almost almost every stand had to include a demurrer or a caveat the views of different high courts were permeating uh, in those pleadings so again it depends on which which court which bench um which view uh, was being uh, was being preferred over the other and since a large part of the initial interaction that either a defendant in the course of the adjudication or the or an accused in the course of an investigation a large part of that interaction with the judicial system is with respect to discretionary remedies uh, so an uncertain law coupled with a uh, an appeal to a discretionary remedy gives rise to terrible uncertainty so at one level there is some sense of uh, there was at least some sense of relief that all right this is what we are facing in terms of uh, the law and then one can go about uh, sort of charting your way through uh, either the investigation or the adjudication the law is undoubtedly strict it's a special law by virtue of being a special law it is expected to be uh, different both in substance and procedure from the general law uh, we normally tend to ensure that uh, our special laws are stricter than the general laws so you already expect a higher burden on the uh, on the defense from a law like uh, the pmla the interpretation that the supreme court has given uh, hues very close to what uh, the government would have uh, pitched it hasn't reached those heights that the government would have uh, liked uh, the interpretation of the pmla to reach but it's high enough it places a very high standard on the on the accused and but at the same time uh, i think there is given the fact that it is a large judgment i think uh, in in the copy that i have i think it goes over 470 paragraphs right uh, the fact that it is such a large judgment covering so many different issues also means that it by itself is going to be subject to a lot of interpretation so i think that this is not the final word on the matter uh, but it it it's a it's a it's a start yeah yeah i i think when um you know the the work that i was doing in your office we were putting you know as you said like 15 grounds for every issue whether it was the definition of money laundering you know is it to be read together is it do you need to project you know um, proceeds of crime as untainted property or mere possession things like um the reverse onus clause 
do we does the reverse onus clause apply in the attachment stage of proceedings or only during the trial um as i was reading the judgment it's um exactly what you said like finally we know that there is an answer we may not like the answer we may like the answer but there is an answer but um so you have that finality but then as you said it's now the review is on and there will be multiple interpretations of these 470 paragraphs and so maybe there will be a new kind of uncertainty in the future but for now um yeah i think what you said is is hugely important and an important perspective from a practitioner um so thank you so much for that and i wanted to touch on um something that you mentioned which is that you know the pmla is a special offense um money laundering is a special offense and every time the court was asked to sort of justify why these special procedures were constitutional it always came back to this justification that um it is a self-contained code it is dealing with this huge offense that threatens the sovereignty of the nation the economic fabric of society and therefore regular criminal procedure would, would not apply so um the pml is not the first law to have these special criminal procedures as you said so can you tell us a little bit before we get to the specifics of the judgment can you tell us a little bit about these special laws and um how they interact with the regular criminal uh, procedure in a way and what are the implications that come from a law that has special courts special procedures special investigation agencies i have some fairly old fashioned views on special laws the the need for a special law is a recognition of one of several facts uh, either the existing law either in substantive terms or in procedural terms is uh, insufficient in some way or falls short of a required standard that is felt uh, by the government or the legislature legislature that would be required in fact to deal with an emergent uh, situation so uh, the familiar suspects that come to mind is terrorism uh, narcotics um, securities law uh, in india at least in in so far as the penal nature is concerned that um, the nuclear security the official secrets uh, act that we have the the sense of the legislature is that given the impact that offenses under these heads could have on either national security or the health of the young or uh, you know the financial security of the of the country there there is required uh, from the government uh, to be projected a framework that is swift strict and easy to apply uh, especially in the indian context now those are all objectives that one really has a difficulty opposing the nobility uh, i think in fact the word used by the uh, chief justice today was that this is a noble law there is no doubt about it so it's i mean that's absolutely right i i don't think you'll ever find a defense council saying that we don't need this law but an academician or a philosopher or a, or or a theoretician may put that forward that do we really need a law like this but that i think is a debate of of for an entirely different day the difficulty that we have is uh, that i have with with the current structure of special laws is that 
I don't think enough academic rigor has gone into whether or not the procedures and the substantive laws that we have set up as our special laws whether they have met those objectives and if if a case under a special statute takes as much time to meander through our courts as a general law uh, case then you know on questions of speed on questions of efficacy the special law would suffer the same consequences of an inquest that the general law would in fact uh, there was an interesting article uh, on the wire i think yesterday or today where uh, i think slightly unfairly in the context of uh, the age of the act uh, uh, prem shankar jha wrote that between 2004 and 2012 according to him there were only 112 cases that were lodged under the pmla and from 2014 onwards the number of cases that have been lodged are over 5000 Now there may be many explanations for that number, and uh, not the least being that the Act itself came into effect uh, in stages over ten years from when it was first, I think, promulgated in two thousand two or two thousand five, and and then moved on to then. But the number that is disconcerting, uh, if your numbers are correct, are that they have yielded only twenty three convictions. Now that is an abysmal number, if. Uh, it's correct i mean even even if i multiply that figure by a factor of 10 uh, that's still an abysmal number the purpose of the money laundering act is not to my mind is not to make attachments provisional attachments of assets it is to punish uh, ultimately persons who are involved in money laundering and take down those networks it has an an additional service that it provides which is it provides adapters all around our system that enables our system our domestic legal system to plug into an international system so those adapters have to be functional adapters uh, and not just uh, there for the sake of uh, being there and that is something that uh, we have seen in our statute book in special acts from the ndps onwards the the ndps the narcotics act that we have uh, currently is an act that coincides with the us war on terror uh, war on drugs in the 80s when the reagan administration was going against um assembly meetings resolutions and general sense that narcotics the domestic narcotic legislation for everyone needs to be at a certain level so that we are punishing the same things we are doing it the same way and that in also included a uh, money laundering uh, aspect uh, penalizing money laundering networks within that so there is a larger purpose for the money laundering act and that's something that in fact the solicitor general raises uh, in his submissions in uh, uh, vijay madanlal choudhury but i think that that aspect of uh, that's that's an objective but we need to assess as uh, theoreticians as academicians as persons who are interested in the legal system whether the system is actually meeting those objectives because if it is not meeting those objectives merely having these provisions on our statute book are uh, are uh, less than helpful because it gives us a false sense of security 
that we have armed ourselves with a statute that protects us from um some from some admittedly heinous uh, ways in which uh, you know money can bad money can inveigle itself into your financial system corrupt your system and uh, create havoc within financial structures but that is a false sense of security if uh, those provisions aren't uh, functional so our system of special laws is uh, is robust in terms of the number of statutes we have the number of pro- the provisions our understanding of those provisions but whether they are effective or not is something that perhaps uh, we haven't paid enough attention to and the pmla is uh, one such uh, there is a lot of attention going into the pmla now so hopefully uh, that should yield some results oh thank you so much for that sir and, and that's why it's always a pleasure to speak with you because i think there has been just so much attention on the constitutional and rights based implications of these special legislations and while those are incredibly important the the follow up question to ask which is the one that you have raised is even if we accept that these special provisions or these strict procedures are good or bad the second question is do they work and are they serving the purpose and it seems that the pmla with the numbers that you um mentioned it seems like it is perhaps not doing the job of you know breaking down these international financial networks and um and and in that case we have these sort of strong laws which definitely do have these rights based implications um and still we don't have the results that these laws are supposed to yield and uh, so it's a double whammy in that sense um and I, i'm i'm really grateful that you mentioned the ndps act because that is you know something like the pmla as you mentioned comes with a lot of international pressure um it again has these special provisions and recently uh, the supreme court um in the tufan singh judgment did sort of say that although the narcotics act is a special act the um police officers in that um or anyone enforcing that law they will be regarded to be police officers and therefore some constitutional protections or some criminal procedure rules that apply to police officers will apply and um but when it comes to the pmla and vijay madan lal choudhury the supreme court said yes special statutes you know the pmla is a special statute but it seems to be that it's different from the ndps to the extent that this police officer rule does not apply to the pmla so now we have many special statutes and in some cases they are seen as analogous and similar to each other but in some cases they are not so even within the special statute world we have these sort of dissimilarities and similarities which can be quite confusing so um it would be very helpful for us to have your thoughts on it and how do you see these things play out and then you're absolutely right uh, there are um, say for example if you take the question of bail that the quintest in in terms of section 45 the section 45 of the pmla which introduces a twin test for the grant of bail over and above the normal considerations uh one of which is that you must demonstrate to the court as an accused that you yourself have not committed this offense this formulation that i have not that i as the accused have not committed the offense 
there is a prima facie case that i am innocent there is a prima facie case that i am guilty this these these various formulate this particular clause in different formulation occurs across the uapa which is the unlawful activities act uh, which also has a twin test i think uh, 43d5 uh, it also exists in um, uh, the ndps it exists in the pmla it also i think exists in the companies act uh, in the context of the sfio the serious fraud investigating office so the fa- but the fact that the twin test is worded differently in each of them has not given rise to a supreme court finding that look it's just a drafts person's uh, view on on how it should be there the twin test is the same for everyone it's um, uh, the twin test is that you should be able to demonstrate at a prima facie level to a court that you have not committed the offense that would have been a logical approach to deal with the dissimilarities of the language of a special test that exists in several special statutes that's what someone would have probably thought is logical but the court the supreme court in in uh, k najib and in in other judgments has taken a different view also logical but not uh, apparent at first glance they have interpreted those various differences and nuances and picked up on those words and have graded for the purposes of the twin test have graded the various special statutes to say the special statute a actually provides a standard that is less strict or, or more lenient when compared to special statute b when compared to special statute c now that's not the supreme court's fault because the supreme court will rely on purposive interpretation or would or on strict interpretation and say that this is what the legislature has given us and we have to find meaning in those words so we can't uh, you know with a broad brush wish away those distinctions which at at one level is very reassuring that the supreme court would uh, in given cases go into that these are cases under the uh, where the nia was investigating at the uapa provisions and it was they were trying to find whether the uapa provisions of Uh, uh bail under 43d5 are uh, less stringent or more stringent than equivalent provisions under the ndps and they came up with uh, an answer for that but what's disconcerting is that the legislature has not been able to keep a single test going in what is effectively a handful of statutes and there is no guidance from the legislature or the executive of the time as to why they are why the second statute is not borrowing the same language from the first statute so is it really just a draftsman's error or is it a deliberate uh, is it a deliberate attempt to do something slightly differently and if so it should have found its way in some note or the other uh, so that that is explained the issue therefore today is open as to whether the P- the officers in charge of uh, conducting pmla investigations are police officers or not open in the sense it was an open issue vijay manlal choudhury says they aren't officers there are consequences to that that provisions that would ordinarily protect an accused 
from a well understood statutory bias against the police that exists in the 1872 evidence act says that if you make a statement before a police officer as an accused that statement will not be used against you it has absolutely no evidentiary value that is vacated merely because of the nature of service that the officer who is conducting the interrogation under the pmla uh, is different from that of a police officer and there are certain the statute makes an attempt to try and give certain ancillary powers to those officers but those powers come with greater sense of responsibility for those officers those powers the statute doesn't give it willy nilly to every officer the, the statute will prescribe that these particular powers which are far beyond that of a normal police officer are being given to an officer of a certain rank and above therefore implicit in that is that that those powers are to be used sparingly those powers are to be used with responsibility and those powers are to be used in a manner that if judicially reviewed are judicially reviewable that means they must leave a record if you can't really have cavil any cavil in fact with what the statute is suggesting that these are sophisticated offenses they require a, a police officer perhaps does not have the every police officer perhaps does not have the expertise to deal with this they require a special class of investigators they'll have better training they'll have their and implicit in it is that they will have fewer cases to focus their expertise on in that case one of two things needed to happen either we need to expand the ed in terms of the number of officers we need to expand the adjudicating authority in terms of the number of adjudicating uh, authorities that exist the number of officers who are capable of doing that we needed to have a functioning appellate tribunal under the pmla which for effectively about two and a half years has been defunct it started i think thankfully uh, a few days ago uh, it it restarted and all this this lack of infrastructure which is again all all uh, at the hands of the government come is compounded by whatever else the general law and the general infrastructure lack of infrastructure in terms of delays etc so this will only compound that eventually everything boils down to uh, going before the high court and the supreme court who have several other jurisdictions to take care of apart from simply uh, you know this kind of uh, these elevated special statute uh, provisions I, i mean i go back to a very simple principle when the oecd was trying to come up with a an anti bribery anti corruption statute one of the issues that uh, they had also we are told is how do you compare different legal systems common law systems uh, so called continental civil law systems and how do we bring some kind of equivalence between the provi- their provisions if uh, say the uk has a particular statute france has a particular statute they have different understanding of those statutes how do we know as experts whether france has met the criteria that the oecd has set up or for that matter whether the uk or the us have met the criteria so they came up with the principle of functional equivalence that we will not only look at the letter of the law we will look at the informal rules and practices and we will look at the overall legal effects and we will assess the overall legal effects that have been produced by a particular legal system and it is it is in those effects those echoes in their legal system that we will assess and determine 
whether or not functional equivalence has been reached and that functional equivalence is then measured up against their convention that this was the standard of the convention have you met that or not i think we need to do something similar with respect to these laws there needs to be some kind of an academic audit not done by practicing lawyers or judges it has to be done uh, academically by persons like you where an analysis is done as to whether or not these provisions coupled with the manner in which these provisions are put into force how these provisions are interpreted how these provisions how persons who go through the system are treated by the system are dealt with by the system and whether or not all that ties up with what are the objective goals that this particular statute uh, had and and those goals ought not to keep on shifting they they will be uh, shifting of goal posts as we are seeing in uh, narcotics law where there is now decriminalization of certain laws so there is there will be some shifting of goal posts there's no doubt about that but we need to be very clear on uh, whether the statute as it is interpreted by this judgment whether it the statute itself is doing justice to its objectives an additional issue there is if this is a statute that is that requires to cover very serious and heinous offenses it requires to allow india to be plugged into a regional or a global system of to contain money laundering uh, if uh, these offenses are of a nature that affect our financial structure then both in terms of the staffing and the structuring of the appellate the tribunals and the authorities there there is one adjudicating authority right now for the entire country and if again if these numbers are correct and if let's assume he's been there from about 2000 and at least 16 or 17 onwards and if it's not 5300 cases is 2500 cases like let's take half of that number you can't expect an individual to deal with 2500 cases uh, in a, in uh, a time bound manner yeah, six months to deal with each one at the adjudication stage and to come up with an answer as to whether i have confirmed it or whether i have not confirmed the provision attachment orders that are being passed by dt it, it is inhuman for us to expect him to be judicious so uh, we aren't giving ourselves the tools to allow for these provisions wonderful as they may be uh, to uh, to do what it is that they are meant to do so that's on the on the aspect of staffing but on the aspect of how many offenses are we shoehorning into the pmla into its schedule for the pmla to work its magic in terms of determining whether proceeds of crime have taken place or not the court of appeals in fact uh, the delhi high court recently justice uh, uh, yashwant varma a past an order in the prakash industries case where he quoted a uh, court of appeals decision uh, from 2010 where which described money laundering as a parasitic legislation so, till now I, i used to describe it as a second degree legislation parasitic is a little uh, is, is strong but uh, shown of its negative connotation it is parasitic because it's, it feeds off the schedule offense but if your schedule offenses or your list of schedule offenses keeps on increasing includes offenses like copyright violations then you yourself are trivializing the use of this statute and it 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 is incapable now of only meeting its objectives which are its noble objectives 
I think that's really important because I uh, I think we sort of as lawyers tend to fixate on courts and interpretations given by courts and um, yeah courts do often have sort of conflicting standards of for example what I started the question with who are police officers or not but I think the perspective that you'd offer you've offered is so much more important of sort of zooming out and being like first let's start with the legislature how are you wording all of these special laws why are you making them slightly different but mostly similar and then moving on to larger questions of infrastructure how are these institutions that are supposed to be running this special self-contained code being staffed how many people are there do they have the institutional capacity to carry out this noble objective as the chief justice said and um and then i think the the point you raised on functional equivalence i mean that is just so important to really look at these laws holistically and see what what actually is coming out of these laws and 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 um yeah i don't know when this exercise will be done and i don't know by who but it definitely must be <laughs> um and so so um i won't take more of your time but i think i just wanted to end um our conversation with sort of uh, a really broad picture sort of view which is that you know the pmla as we've spoken a little bit and other people have called it sort of a kafka esque law right the ed can come in attach your properties you can get arrested by the ed you can be subject to a multitude of proceedings whether it is the attachment of your properties or your relatives properties as well as um criminal prosecutions under the law and um now with the supreme court judgment the ed can do this with um few checks and balances in terms of they have a lot of power um to sort of um undertake um all of these actions so um i wanted to get a sense of what you think of this law and what it means for the rule of law in general um to have such a law on the statute books which are you know proceeds in the way that you said it does with you know one officer sitting over 2500 cases um and where where do you see this going and how do you see um this judgment playing into into how this law is operating on the ground see i think there are a couple of trends that are coinciding we have uh, there there have been a series of judgments in the last uh, 18 months or so two years or 18 months on bail jurisprudence uh, in fact ending with the uh, antil's case where the supreme court has suggested that we in fact now need a separate bail statute uh, because uh, you know just trying to figure out what is the mechanism for grant of bail in each individual statute has now become overtly tedious uh because each statute or the makers of each individual special statute are finding newer and newer ways in which they avoid going back to the general law and i think from a from a from a draft person's point of view that is a serious error because the existing general law is actually flexible enough to cover a number of situations for which the special laws have tied themselves up in knots trying to get out of uh, the ambit of the general law uh 
they would be far better served uh, by just sticking to the general law in a variety of different provisions right so for example they don't there are there aren't separate provisions for the medical examination of the accused because they think that the general law is good enough but that that's also true for uh, the general law on searches it should be true for the general law on uh, you know making statements before a magistrate the existing procedures the existing special procedure in the prevention of corruption act or the 88 act as amended has also been changed by the pmla to change the nature of a trial which is also a special trial now they may again there may be very good reasons for that but those reasons i mean as as students of the law we have been left to our own devices to divine those reasons we are not given the at least the thinking of the government as to why why is a special trial uh under the pmla a sessions trial case whereas a special trial uh, uh, the the trial under the pc act or the prevention of corruption act was a warrant trial case why 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 did you feel the need for that the, and the fact that this uh these trials and these provisions and these uh, various interpretations are also subject to a statute that is being amended uh quite frequently and frequently enough to give pause for us when we are practitioners to actually come up with tables as to how that particular provision has evolved over the last 10 years and then there are arguments on you know which uh, at what point of time will which definition be used right so suppose uh, the fir is being uh, the the ecr is being lodged on so and so date well the definition was this you know could i have uh, you know in the last 10 years uh, would you take it at the stage of summoning would you take it at the stage of charge at what time of what time of day and seeking bail you know it's it, 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 so in that context if you if you're looking at the uh, if you zoom in really closely it is kafkaesque it is a little strange yeah. but again it, it's not kafkaesque in the sense that it is unknowable if you zoom out if if The, the this is not a case of uh, defense good and government bad right there is an ostensible and a good reason a logical reason for these uh, statutes to be present on your book but if these special laws these individuals who are tasked with enforcing the special laws or reviewing the special laws don't always perform their tasks with intellectual integrity right quite apart from whether they are otherwise integral I mean, that that's an entirely different debate altogether right and that is not limited only to special statutes in terms of whether there is political pressure or there is corruption that that's that there unfortunately across the board those allegations are there that's that's something we can we can do without in terms of just trying to analyze this in particular there is an intellectual integ- integrity that is required to put these provisions into action because if they are used on an everyday basis against everyone for every trial against a journalist against a businessman against a small trader against a big politician against a small politician against an opposition politician against politicians who fall out of favor against police officers against everybody it's no longer very special then it's not a very special law it's not a special law it's something that that comes uh, in some perception it comes with the territory so then uh that's really where 
the law opens itself up then to criticism and we tend to want to throw the baby out with the bath water that this entire law is that that's not true this law in some form or the other uh, you've done uh, matters where we've examined that some form of this law was introduced by the british in during world war 2 in the 1944 ordinance which is one of those uh, unfortunate zombie ordinances that that still survive till today so this is not a new law these provisions aren't new but there is greater scrutiny that is coming on the law which is which is perhaps welcome so uh, the implication on the rule of law is that if if a perception starts going out that this is a law that is subject not only to that is unknowable that even the uh, you know superior courts constitutional courts are grappling with uh, are, are not able to come up with clear formulations of what it is then from within the country perhaps uh, there would be less of an issue of perception but from outside the country from persons who are or institutions that are interested in working with india if they start getting a sense that yeah. merely because they have these statutes on their books does not mean that they are actually doing the job that they say they are doing the level of cooperation which should be increasing is over time will start suffering and and we in fact are in an era where there is an increase in cooperation there are uh, we we are seeing on the ground that the government is asking for cooperation from foreign government and is receiving them so presumably we are also being asked and we are giving the same amount of cooperation so all the more reason for these institutions and these officers and these statutes etc to be even more robust and because uh, with, with greater international interaction these laws are going to be called into question uh, in, in a more and more jurisdiction and we are going to have to answer that so in that context this judgment is helpful because it, it gives certain reasons right i'm sure there are uh, there are many views on whether those reasons are good or bad but it provides a baseline for that discussion to move forward Yeah thank you so much for that sir and um i think the in today's review proceedings the solicitor general referred to sort of this is part of a global effort and what you said is so important in terms of we need this law to have sort of sense of clarity a sense of certainty a sense of workability not just for ourselves but for us to fulfill these international obligations that this law has set out to fulfill and for all of these reasons i hope that there is some sense of clarity and the the law as you said doesn't keep spiraling and growing bigger and bigger in terms of its scope without having the kind of clarity and institutional capacity that it needs to become workable and i think these insights are um incredibly important for anyone interested in this law and the implications of the supreme court judgment um so thank you very much for that sir and um yeah with that we'll wrap our conversation up yeah thank you manika pleasure speaking to you yes sir thank you